0: Another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. With me today are Bruce Nathan and Scott Cargill, the co authors of one of ABI's newest publications, the Trade Creditor Remedies Manual. Trade creditors dealing with financially troubled customers often have difficulty collecting their claims. Unpaid sellers and service providers must refrain from collection efforts against a buyer that files for bankruptcy unless specifically authorized to take action by the bankruptcy court or the bankruptcy code. Many trade creditors are surprised when a customer files bankruptcy and have no idea what remedies are available to them, which can be fatal to their claims. Bruce and Scott authored the Trade Creditors Remedies Manual to provide much-needed direction to trade creditors and their counsel. Bruce Nathan received his B.A. from the University of Rochester, his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and his M.B.A. from the Wharton School of Finance and Business. Bruce is a member of Loewenstein Sandler's Bankruptcy Financial Reorganization and Creditors' Rights Group in New York. He has 30 years of experience in the bankruptcy and insolvency field and is recognized as a national expert on trade creditor rights. Bruce is a member of ABI's Board of Directors, a former co-chair of ABI's Unsecured Trade Creditors Committee, and a contributing editor of the ABI Journal. He is also a member of the National Association of Credit Management and sits on NACM's General Editorial Advisory Board and Government Affairs Committee. He is joined by his co-author, Scott Cargill, who received his Bachelor of Science from the State University of New Jersey at Rutgers and his law degree from NYU School of Law. Scott is of counsel in Lowenstein-Sandler's Bankruptcy Financial Reorganization and Creditors Rights Group and has extensive experience in bankruptcy courts throughout the country in matters concerning debtor and creditor rights. Scott, like Bruce, is a frequent lecturer on trade credit issues across the country and is also a contributor to the ABI Journal. Welcome, Scott and Bruce. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. The first chapter of the Trade Creditors' Book emphasizes the need for trade creditors to be proactive when dealing with financially distressed buyers. In your experience, why is that so critical? And is there any one particular warning sign that is more of a red flag than the others?
1: Okay, and let me. This is Bruce. Let, let let me start. This is probably the most important question that we're going to be discussing, and th- that's why this was actually uh, the warning signals is, is at the beginning of the book um, for a trade creditor uh that that's dealing with a financially troubled customer. There are a lot of remedies that they have as we've as we've indicated in the book, both under the Uniform Commercial Code, under state law, and under the bankruptcy code, uh, to minimize their exposure. But the key is identifying uh that they have a struggling customer and acting quickly, uh, even before the bankruptcy is filed, uh, to take some action to that would reduce their exposure is critical. And the only way uh, that trade creditors can do this is being able to identify through some of these warning signals that this is a customer uh, that that may be a candidate for bankruptcy in the future. And as a perfect example, uh, one of the remedies that we're gonna be discussing, the the right to demand adequate assurance of the customer's ability to perform, which is uh, UCC 2609, there's an equivalent remedy Uh, For service providers. Um, If the customers file bankruptcy, uh, that remedy is less useful. The creditor has substantial exposure, and we're dealing with the bankruptcy remedies, which we'll talk about later, which are helpful, Uh, but the creditor already has the exposure and is going to be taking the risk at a minimum that a portion of its claim is not going to be paid for quite a while, may not be paid in full. Um, even if they have some of these remedies in bankruptcy that we're talking about, um, to be able to identify a financially struggling customer and to be able to raise some of these warning signals as a justification to invoke this adequate assurance remedy could substantially reduce a trade creditor's exposure. I, I was recently involved in a case where we identified a, a potential chapter 11, a, a, a debtor uh, with a risk of filing a chapter 11, two years before they actually filed. And uh, Scott, in just a second, is going to talk about some of the warning signals that gave rise to this. But we were able to use that uh, threat of a bankruptcy to justify uh, reducing our exposure by changing our terms where we might not have otherwise been able to do it. And as a result, what was a multi-million dollar exposure a couple of years ago was reduced to a few hundred thousand dollar exposure because we were able to exercise these remedies. And if we had waited to, until the bankruptcy, we would have been limited uh, in terms of the remedies that we could assert, and our exposure would have been a lot higher. So being able to identify these warning signals well before bankruptcy allows the creditor to then utilize some of the remedies under the Uniform Commercial Code that are in the book, like this adequate assurance remedy, uh, to to take some steps to... to reduce their terms, for example, or potentially change their terms to cash in advance. And that could substantially reduce their exposure in the bankruptcy to come. And if they're waiting until the bankruptcy filing to to take action, uh, they're gonna have less of an opportunity to take advantage of those remedies. And Scott, uh, uh, maybe the best way is to go to you and to discuss some of these warning signals.
2: Thank you, Bruce. Um, yes, Amy, I, I think one of the, the important functions here, uh, it, over, particularly over the last several years as, as more information became available, electronic, that we've seen uh, throughout the cross-section of industries is that credit managers, the credit department function is thinking and acting more in terms like an investor in a business that it has a customer relationship than ever before and what do I mean by acting like an investor is looking at items that typically you would only uh, associate with what an, an investor would look at matrix of a company um, that's publicly available uh, that's publicly available for instance uh, a company that reports to the SEC to look at items um, that have long term horizons for instance, when is the company's uh, credit line? Uh, coming up for maturity? Uh, what is their borrowing capacity? Do they have outstanding bonds? If so, when are the, when are the bond interest payments and when are the principal payments coming due? We're we're looking over a scope of months or years, not not weeks. And then this information, it's filed with the SEC. It's, it's publicly available in a, through a series of electronic means. And by monitoring your customer to see what issues they have, and particularly liquidity issues, how much cash do they have available and what big payments do they have coming up, I think is is a significant change in attitudes of how a credit department uh, monitors its customers. They're also following investors in the market. So if there's an unexplained uh sudden drop in in their stock price that doesn't be, seem to be associated with the with the uh stock markets or their bond pricing is is suddenly uh moving d- downward. There's some information out there that investors are being concerned about there maybe there's a potential risk for financial trouble, and that's something if you have a large exposure as a uh selling and that that entity is your credit uh, your your customer and you have large exposure, you want to be asking those questions because just as a bondholder may be a creditor in a Chapter 11, so too you might be a general unsecured creditor. So those issues, maturities, uh, principal payments, borrowing capacity, liquidity, are all instrumental, particularly with your larger accounts, to watch those for that information as it comes out, as it's publicly reported, and look for long-term trends with respect to the, the, your customer's financial performance.
1: You know, it's really fascinating because I started practicing 30 years ago, and boy, has, has, information, has, has information become more readily available. I, I'm just amazed in the past 10 years how much more public information is available, much more than it was when I started practicing. And when you look at these warning signals, you could actually go, you know, as we, you know, as we go from the beginning, you know, the the start of them, dealing with financial, you know, bad financial results, that's kind of the start of it. And as Scott mentioned, you know, some of the, uh, some some of the information, the the bond information in the, uh, on the market between pricing and maturities, you know, a a credit downgrade uh, below a certain point is significant. Heck, in the Circuit City case, you know, credit insurance was withdrawn several months before the bankruptcy of Circuit City. That itself was a telltale sign, you know, that we alerted our clients to. And then we noticed, like like a month before the filing, the puts, the the, the put, uh, which is which is kind of a sort of credit insurance, but only for the for the for the Circuit City distressed account. When they were withdrawn, it was clear uh, that the, the Circuit City was going to be filing a bankruptcy. Also, again, well enough before a bankruptcy filing that that creditors could have taken some of the actions. Um, you know, under the Uniform Commercial Code to protect themselves, whether it was demanding adequate assurance, whether it was stoppage of delivery. And the key is, is w- while these remedies are available in bankruptcy, you might get more bang for your buck if you're exercising them before the bankruptcy. And then as you go through some of these uh, uh, warning signals in terms of resignations of CFO, CEO, telltale side again, uh, that that the company may be a candidate for filing resignations to board members, Uh, Adding a board member with a bankruptcy background uh, is certainly a telltale sign. And uh, then you get closer to the bankruptcy filing, the retention of bankruptcy professionals, the retention of financial advisory professionals. You know, it's amazing, even in Chrysler, you know, it was was disclosed before their filing that uh, they were retaining bankruptcy counsel. All of this information you now have available in the public realm, where 20 years ago you wouldn't see any of this information. Uh, to make the remedies more effective, um, having access uh, to and understanding what warning signals could justify taking these steps is really, to me, the most critical part of being able to get the most bang in exercising the steps.
0: So you, you mentioned that one of the reasons why trade creditors should turn to state law remedies is because they may actually get more bang for their buck, more recovery prior to a customer filing bankruptcy. But In your experience, do you find that many trade creditors are actually able to exercise their state law rights under the UCC, or do they find themselves instead delaying intentionally or unintentionally until a customer files a bankruptcy petition? I mean, are there particular provisions of the UCC that trip trade creditors up?
1: Let let me tell you what, again, I, I think this is education, Amy. And one of the things that Scott and I have tried to do over the years is to educate the trade that there were a lot of things they could do before the bankruptcy is filed, and uh, they have the best chance of minimizing their exposure uh, if they take the steps well before bankruptcy. But they're kind of in a quandary because trade creditors may be operating under agreements, a supply agreement, a services agreement, or, or a purchase order, long-term purchase order, which requires that they accept credit, and their customer is current in payment. So there's no justification for for the creditor to take any action. There's no default that's occurred, let's say, under the contract. But we hear they, they hear that uh, Adelphi, for example, uh, Adelphi, the, the 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 possibility of a bankruptcy was not a secret. It was actually bandied about the press uh, for a period of time before their bankruptcy was filed. Uh, or in the case of like, for example, a New Page. I mean that that the press um, and that's a coated paper manufacturer the largest coated paper manufacturer in the world who had recently filed chapter eleven their Their financial situation uh was properly documented. They were filing S e c filings uh that that were showing the deterioration of the company and the question for a creditor who's dealing with these companies is if they're locked in and have contractual agreements to extend credit, how can they justify changing those terms where the customer is not in default uh, and there's real concern that sooner or later, may not be tomorrow, maybe a month from now, maybe a year from now, because of any of these warning signals that show up, uh, that these, these folks may end up filing for bankruptcy. And when they are educated um, and, they, and they find out that there are bases under the Uniform Commercial Code to take these steps, uh, to change the terms, and 2609 of the Uniform Commercial Code is a perfect example. It talks about, you know, if there's reasonable grounds to believe uh, that the counterparty will be unable to perform, um, the the other party, the, the, the seller, for example, could demand adequate assurance uh, of the other parties, the financial distressed party's ability to perform. And out of that leads to a negotiation, um because again the the remedy could be switched to cash in advance terms, but it may be that uh, both the creditors and the and the customer's agenda may not be to switch to those terms but maybe to tighten the terms from say net sixty days to net twenty days but They don't have that opportunity because the customer is not in default, they're current in obligations. So how do they – what's the justification? Well, they can can utilize this UCC 2609 adequate assurance right to kind of get themselves into the door and into the negotiations uh, to be able to see if they can effect a change in terms. And, of course, if they are changing terms and they're reducing their terms, say, from 60 days to 20 days – uh if the if the cust if and when the customer were to file for bankruptcy, uh their exposure is going to be reduced as a result of that change of terms. Hypothetically, if you have if you're concerned, say a year before the customer ends up filing for bankruptcy, uh that there are grounds to believe that this customer may eventually file. They have an upcoming bond payment as Scott discussed. They their CEO and their CFO resigned. They had adverse financial results according to their SEC filings. There were rumors that uh, if they can't uh, deleverage or or negotiate uh, to convert a lot of their debt to equity, uh, that they may eventually file for bankruptcy. Um, If if a creditor utilizing that information would demand adequate assurance of the debtor's ability to pay their claim, and uh, they end up uh, negotiating a reduction of terms, let's say, uh, from 60 days to 20 days, a year later when that company files, that creditor's exposure is going to likely be significantly less. And to the extent that they can utilize these this, this remedy to potentially get some support, some backstopping uh, to support the secure payment of the claim, whether that backstopping is a letter of credit or some other device, uh, that also is going to reduce their exposure. So these remedies are the ticket uh, to justify a change of terms where contractually uh, there may be no obligation on the part of the financially distressed debtor uh, to be able to do that and the key to this is education because you're right Amy all too often uh, people just wait until the bankruptcy thinking they really have very little recourse and then they looked at their bankruptcy remedies, but uh, one of the reasons why we wrote this book was to say there are a lot of things you can do before bankruptcy, and when people are educated and they actually do it, they are surprised uh, about the results. And Scott, you know, I talked about adequate assurance uh, as one remedy, but there are other remedies uh, that uh, that can be utilized either before or after bankruptcy.
2: Yes, thank you, Bruce. And uh, the the two remedies that that come to come to mind is uh both reclamation of goods um as well as uh, the state law right under the UCC of uh, stoppage of of delivery um well, first, to take a look at the the, the stoppage and delivery right, this is a, a perfect example of of needing to have an educated credit and legal department that's um, you know an ability to take action and understand that these rights exist. Um, it's usually when the the ability to exercise a stoppage of delivery uh, right is, is going to happen. It's going to happen very quickly. It's it's basically a state law right that uh, when a a uh, seller sells goods uh, to to a customer, and they're not yet delivered um, either because they're in 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 transit uh, on a uh, by transportation of either a third party or, or the seller um, hasn't yet gotten to the to the buyer and sold goods on on credit, and the seller discovers that the buyer uh, is insolvent. They could actually. Put a instruction in uh, to either their own uh, transportation provider or a third party or a common carrier um, to stop delivery, and they could demand from the buyer that th- that the goods be paid for prior. To being delivered, so irrespective of what the credit terms may have said it's it, it, think of it in terms of you 've done business, thinking that you were dealing with a a solvent customer. it turns out you 're insolvent now you have rights and this this right is actually independent of the bankruptcy uh, filing it, it, there's case law out there that says it's, it' it 's not uh, impacted by by the automatic stay you you probably want to go back to to court before you actually try to attempt to uh, secure those go- uh, goods back if, if they've gone out but um, it, it, this is a state law right that that exists through the filing of a bankruptcy so what may happen is you you become aware that your customer filed for bankruptcy or otherwise that they're insolvent you issue direction and you hold those goods be it on a freight car on a truck on a, on a, on a steamer um, and you demand payment in, in full. and that's depending on how important those goods are to your customer. That's a huge leverage point, but it has to be done correctly and it has to be done quickly. Secondly, um, and, and we'll make circle back to uh, Bruce, because I think he might have an example on that um, is reclamation uh, of goods. Now, this is a this is a situation where it's the next logical step progression. Now you find out the customer was. Insolvent, um, but the the customer has already received the goods. Um, you have a right uh, to make a reclamation demand for the return of those goods under uh, the UCC, and that right proceeds through bankruptcy. But this is also independent UCC um, state law right. Now your remedy is is going to get a little bit more tricky here because your only remedy available. Is to get the actual goods back. You can't sue for the value of the goods. And there's a, as we go through the book, there's a number of defenses that are available. But once you send a UCC demand, one of the things I like to, to tell clients is now you've gotten on the customer's radar screen. You've you've made a demand. You you've given legal authority, and and you may have to go to state court. And you might have to start an action. But probably more importantly, you've begun hopefully a discussion and. And the fact that you've now identified you yourself as someone who understands, I have state law remedies. I'm going to seek to reclaim my goods. I'm going to start potentially a lawsuit against you. You may never get to to the point of actually having to litigate a lawsuit, but you're exercising these rights. You're making the customer pay attention to you, and hopefully that's going to be something that begins the negotiation process. As Bruce said, with the adequate assurance, this is a, 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 a more dramatic step forward, but at any point, remember that, you, you, you can put down the uh, the weapons of litigation and, and decide to see if an agreement can't be reached that's going to help protect you in the long run.
1: And, you know, on the stoppage of delivery, I, I can't do better than a case that I had last week, a Chapter 11 that was filed. And I had a client uh, that had a six-figure claim for goods that were with a carrier. And after they found out about the Chapter 11, they stopped delivery of those goods it was interesting we got a call from Dennis counsel we were told this violates the automatic stay. I referred them to the manual actually and I said I, I would suggest you go out and buy it uh, because uh, there's uh, it, it, there are there's a recitation of cases in the manual and a discussion of this and uh, uh, our stoppage right is not uh, barred uh, by the automatic stay. we can't get the goods back but we can we could certainly stop them. And uh, I would suggest to you that if you want to go in that direction, yeah, we're prepared to go to court and argue it. And what ended up happening is uh, the debtor agreed to just pay for the goods, and uh, the goods were released. So we were able to use the stoppage of delivery right to get full payment of the goods. You will contrast this with uh, the Section 503b-9 priority claim for goods delivered within 20 days of bankruptcy that we'll talk about in a few minutes, where recovery potential is uncertain. And uh, with timing of recovery, uh, in many instances, is not going to happen until the conclusion of the case. So here, here, we were able to use stoppage of delivery as a basis for getting our claim, our goods paid for, uh, after the bankruptcy was filed. Stoppage of delivery is also uh, a, a good vehicle. Uh, we are operate where a creditor is operating under a supply agreement um as as a justification to change the terms that are set uh in that agreement one of the benefits of changing terms pre-bankruptcy is uh to the extent that uh, you're you're operating the creditor is operating in accordance with the uniform commercial code once the terms are changed pre-bankruptcy that's it Uh, whether they're cash in advance or whether new terms are agreed to that is what goes into the bankruptcy. There's there's been this ambiguity, this question about uh, a creditor's ability uh, to switch from the credit terms it has in its contract uh, to cash in advance after the bankruptcy is filed. A lot of that is a function of of how the contract is drafted. But even if the contract is silent on any right uh, to switch terms, uh, this stoppage of delivery right could be invoked as a basis to switch the terms and as a basis if, if, the, if the debtor is unwilling to agree uh, to go to court uh, to seek um, adequate uh, protection or adequate assurance or, stoppage or, 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 or recognition of the stoppage of delivery rights and the switch and the ability of the creditor to switch to cash in advance terms. So again, these remedies uh, give you a lot of bang for the buck before the bankruptcy. And they give you a bang for the buck after the bankruptcy uh, that allows you to recover more than if you're just relying on the bankruptcy remedies that we're going to be talking about. One thing creditors should be very careful about, though, is many times they will enter into agreements with their customers, uh, and there may be provisions in the agreements that waive some of these rights, waive the right to demand adequate assurance uh, performance or limit those rights or, or potentially even waive the right to stop delivery of goods. All that we're talking about um, in terms of the Uniform Commercial Code rights, uh, you got to be careful because if the creditor waives or limits those rights, it's the contract that's going to govern. And I, too, many times have seen contractual provisions that have limited these rights and advised my client uh, that uh, that they 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 are bound by the terms of their contract. So uh, folks have to be careful that uh, that uh, that these rights ideally. Their contracts should be drafted to enhance their ability to assert these rights, but certainly the contracts should not be providing for any circumscribing or, or waiver of these rights, uh, because these rights can be waived uh, by agreement of the parties.
0: Bruce, you talked about some of the case law that was cited in the manual, and I just wanted to point out to our listeners that um, the manual also includes an appendix that has several Forms that are applicable to the UCC state law remedies. There's an adequate assurance demand and a stoppage of delivery demand, as well as a pre-bankruptcy reclamation demand, which I think would be very helpful for trade creditors who are trying to figure out and navigate the waters prior to a bankruptcy filing. But So we've discussed some of the warning signals that trade creditors should pay attention to, as well as the state law remedies available to trade creditors prior to a customer filing bankruptcy. But now let's assume a, bank, a customer has filed bankruptcy. How did BAPSEPA, with the addition of Section 503b9, in your opinion, change the playing field uh, for trade creditors? Uh,
1: thank you, and let, let me start on this because uh, I, I was involved with the National Association of Credit Management in helping draft this statute, uh, 503b9, um, which provides trade creditors an administrative priority claim for the goods uh they sold to the debtor prepetition and that were received by the debtor within twenty days of bankruptcy has really redressed the imbalance uh between tra- between the trade and secured creditors that was uh, that 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 was occurring uh over the ten year, fifteen year period uh before BAFSEEPA was finally adopted. When when I started practicing, God, I can't I'm embarrassed to say this, in 1981, reclamation, and this was the state law right that Scott talked about, and the bankruptcy code before Batsepa recognized the state law right of reclamation, um, gave creditors a, 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 a 10-day period and potentially up to 20-day period to send a reclamation demand. Uh, when I started practicing, reclamation really meant something, and there was a remedy uh, that was provided in Section 546C that uh, that granted a creditor with an allowed reclamation claim and allowed administrative priority claim for the goods that were subject to reclamation to the extent that uh, the, the relief of reclaiming the goods was denied by the court. And what was happening more and more, particularly as we got into the 90s and uh, and after 2000, is more and more case law holding that the existence of a a secured credit or a lender with a blanket floating security interest, a floating lien in, in inventory, more and more courts were holding that the existence of that floating lien effectively rendered reclamation rights valueless. So while 30 years ago when I started practicing reclamation really was an effective remedy, Uh, reclamation was becoming uh, virtually a gutted remedy, a remedy that really had no meaning because uh, it it was worthless every time the debtor had a secured lender with a blanket inventory which was virtually all all the time. When you combine that with the fact of uh, of multiple tranches of secured debt um, uh, for financially distressed companies, uh, the change in the nature of secured creditors, um, while in the early 80s when I started practicing uh, the trade had this reclamation right uh, that gave them some leverage. that reclamation right was 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 wasting away. Combine that with the fact that uh, 503b9 one of the reasons for for the passage of 503b9 it was one of the bases for reclamation under state law was the was the argument that uh, the creditors who were shipping goods selling goods on credit, to a debtor, and again, 503B9 is limited to sales of goods, not provisions of services. Um, to the extent that uh, credit, trade creditors were providing goods shortly before the bankruptcy, um, it was likely during that time the debtor was negotiating its Chapter 11 financing and knew at that point, and its secured lender knew at that point, that uh, goods were coming in on credit uh, where where the debtor was not going to be paying for those goods and where there was effectively no remedy for trade creditors. That was one of the reasons uh, for for the the push for and the passage of Section 503b9 of of this priority claim. Uh, it has attempted to redress uh, this imbalance, and it's interesting because a lot of people uh, would would get on this phone or get on this uh, get on this uh, podcast and express a, a contrary opinion that 503b9 is the, has been the death knell in retail Chapter 11s. Uh, and and has had an adverse impact on other bankruptcy cases. Um, But essentially, this this claim has been an attempt to redress the imbalance, and it has had a positive impact. Uh, Creditors, at least in the cases where I've represented trade creditors, creditors have done a lot better being able to assert this Section 503b9 claim, this priority claim, for goods that were shipped and delivered and received within 20 days of bankruptcy. Um, in addition to those increased recoveries, you're seeing more and more cases where creditors' committees are relying on or arguing uh, that uh, any financing arrangement or any sale arrangement where you have a potentially administratively insolvent bankruptcy case, uh, and, uh, and there's a Chapter 11 filing with a view towards a quick uh, Section 363 sale um that uh, that uh, the the Section five oh two B nine claims need to be protected as part of the price for admission, as part of paying the freight uh for for the lender uh or other parties utilizing bankruptcy uh to effectuate uh that sale process. And uh, and and that benefits unsecured creditors because to the extent that a portion of the priority debt is satisfied and there are any other available assets, there's more of a likelihood for unsecured creditors to see some sort of recovery. All of this has resulted from this, from the passage and the implementation of Section 503B9. Um, Scott, I, I don't know if you want to add anything uh, to that or discuss any other impacts of the BATSEPA changes.
2: I think overall the 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 takeaway that you know I when I think of the BPS changes and particularly 503B9 it's it's not so much that you know as others may view it as giving goods uh providers as some type of additional benefit as it is to kind of releveling um the the, the playing field um and I think that 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 might be the way you know a lot of people are are looking at it rather than the, the, than somehow um the the, suppo- the supplier of goods have gotten this leg up um by virtue of the that CIPA changes and, and the other point that i would you know just make is it, it, it's a very interesting it was, it's been a very interesting time because Right around, the shortly after the implementation of the bap changes, you also had a very different uh, downturn cycle with the you know, tightening of credit markets. And we, we've seen much, much less cases uh, that, where the central goal is actually a reorganization and more geared towards these quick sales and um, towards liquidation. And, and in some of those quick sale cases, uh, this 503b9 remedy as as Bruce has mentioned has actually been a leverage point that um, maybe some people didn't appreciate uh, you know fully until it started to play out in the courts you,
1: you know one of the interesting a- what, are the, what are the interesting aspects of 503b9 that Scott kind of you know kind of uh, got me thinking about you know when, when, when there were efforts to repeal 503b9 what, what to what extent were creditors actually relying on 503b9 To continue extending credit to financially troubled customers because there are many industries where the terms are short and where um, folks at least have the view uh, if there were a 503b9 that there is some protection for trade creditors uh, if their customer were to file bankruptcy and query if that protection was taken away would that discourage uh, folks from extending credit to financially troubled companies, which would further expedite the likelihood of them filing for bankruptcy. You know, this is a really interesting area. I know uh, that we're going to be going into some of the litigation on it, um, and there's been a lot of debate. I uh, was involved uh, in a number of forums for ABI in debating whether Section 503b9 uh, should be repealed or not. I have to tell you, as we get into the litigation. Uh, This is a statute where every word is litigated because the stakes are so high, because the impact this has or may have on the secured lenders and the fact that they may be paying out of their collateral uh, payments to Section 503B9 claimants. And uh, and, and at the end of the day, um, this has helped the trade and, and as we both said, redress the balance vis-a-vis secured lenders and debtors.
0: Bruce, you touched on some of the litigation issues, which, you know, 503b9 is certainly a hotbed. Are there some 503b9 issues that we'll see litigated down the road in the next year or two? Or are there other trade creditor issues that are going to come to the forefront that we're going to see litigated?
2: Yeah, let me, Scott, why don't you take that first and then I'll chime in, Okay. Okay, thank you, Bruce. Um, Amy, I think the 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 fact that um, the 503 being not, and you know, we, we just spent you know, a good amount of time talking about all the policy considerations and uh, the reasons for it, and 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 what it has done, and and it's it, it it's kind of remarkable that uh, that same one sentence, practically, uh, uh, addition to the code, uh, has created so much litigation. I think this is really in the next several years going to be litigating the meaning of nearly every word in the statute where a lot of uh, effort and time uh, by attorneys and their clients are going to be spent because uh, the stakes are high. It's either an admi- admin claim um, or, or, or perhaps a general unsecured claim, depending on where the litigation comes out. Um, basic issues, you know, we think of this is for goods and it kind of rolls off the tongue. Of course, it's for good suppliers, good suppliers number of cases, and we've covered them in the, uh, in the manual, as to what does a good mean? Is uh, the supply of water a good? Is, is the supply of natural gas a good? Uh, electricity, you know, do, do, does that have a feel of a good or is that more of a service? And and as we discussed, the, the courts have come out differently on that. And one of the the, the overarching uh, principles as we go into the, these litigations is what's the test? What should it look like? It's it's kind of a, a new statutory right in the bankruptcy code, um, but it, it kind of has a feel of a um, of a UCC uh, sort of remedy. So do we look to the UCC for guidance? As to what type, when, when they needed to decide if something was a good or not, um, there were certain tests that they apply. Are those tests applicable in this federal bankruptcy statutes? Then you have courts coming to get very different conclusions on that, and it's not yet really um, you know any of these issues written to, certainly to the Supreme Court level, and 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 the uh, amount of number of cases that are going to the circuits. Um, you know, it, it's working its way through, but it, it, we're still far from a, a, a consensus. Uh, other issue is what does receipt mean? Does the, uh, the fact that title passed uh, or the risk of loss has, has passed on the, on the goods, um, does that affect the uh, receipt uh, for purposes of, of this new bankruptcy provision? This is a huge issue for dropship suppliers, where the goods leave the seller's warehouse or or whatever uh, facility and never actually go to the debtor. They go directly to the debtor's customer. Well, the statute says it has to be received by the debtor within 30 days. There's arguments constructive receipt. The third-party customer acts as an an agent when, when the goods land on the customer's doorstep. Is that good enough for a receipt? Does it require somebody to unpack the goods, or what is the test for determining receipt? Again, this is a brand new statute, relatively brand new statute. Do we look to UCC for guidance, or should we be thinking about this in a new way? Another issue, and I'm practically going down, you know, the sentences of the statutory provision. What does value mean? Um, some courts have taken a you know a view of well, the value means maybe the invoice price. Other courts say not so sure. What is the value of the goods received? Is that replacement value? Is that um, Should that include taxes and, and freight? Where do we start to look at? Maybe the invoice price is a good uh, beginning point, um, but the courts are not necessarily all in agreement that that's a uh, conclusive proof of, proof of what the value is. So, so right there, just in, in terms of what does receipt mean, what do goods mean, and what do values mean... That's going to keep the courts um, and litigants busy for for quite a while. And and frankly, the implications of these litigations um, could have a drastic impact um, regarding whether or not you're considered a 503B9 claimant or not.
1: You know, it's really interesting, Scott, you know, just kind of continuing with the thought, uh, because, again, 503B9 is really the true safety net. Uh, for trade creditors, who you know whose whose reclamation rights are are now valueless, and uh, with the potential for recovery on unsecured claims, is very speculative. There, there are a lot of open issues of uh, the 503b9 uh, that that are being litigated. First of all, how do you assert this claim? The statute provides little guidance. It talks about allowance of the claim after notice at a hearing, which would imply that a creditor should be filing a motion to obtain relief on this claim. The problem is, all too often, if creditors do so, the debtors respond uh, and argue that uh, that uh, it's premature. Uh, the, the court has the has the power to decide when the claim gets paid, uh, and the claim shouldn't be paid until the end of the case. and uh, and, and the debtor may may argue that uh, it, it, the claim should not be dealt with at the present time. There'll be procedures that will be established later. Uh, but at the very minimum, the creditor is the only relief the creditor may get on a best case basis is allowance of the priority claim. But they have to wait until the end of the case for payment and to see what the likelihood of payment is. The the deficiency, you know, the bankruptcy rules. Uh, there there are no rules to deal with how these claims get asserted. This becomes almost an ad hoc court by court determination. You see, in some cases, courts will approve procedures on asserting and reconciling the claims. It could be uh, something as simple as a special proof-of-claim form that has to be filed by a bar date just for the 503b9 claim. It may be uh, that as part of the general claims bar date and included in the proof-of-claim for all pre-petition claims would be include, asserting the 503b9 claim in that claim form. Or the there may be silence on the issue, in which case trade creditors really have to grapple. How is What is the appropriate way of asserting the claims? Uh, with the concern that uh, if they don't assert it properly, a secured lender or a debtor will argue that uh, the claim should not be entitled to priority. In addition, uh, what can be asserted on uh, to to allowance the payment of these claims, and most importantly, can preferences be asserted uh, as a basis uh, for for disallowing the claim? And, and the courts are divided on on the issue uh, in connection with the Bible. 5- claims, and uh, the, the manual actually discusses the division among the cases, and there are all but three of three cases, or four cases, excuse me, on this issue. So they, they, this is an evolving area where, uh, you know, as we go forward, uh, there'll be there'll be yet more cases that we'll be uh, including in, in subsequent versions of the manual. Can, can uh, a 503 claim, a priority claim is fully paid, count as new value to reduce preference exposure, preference claims, which I've alluded to. Are claims for payments that uh, the creditor receives within ninety days of bankruptcy on account of antecedent existing debt uh, that uh, that were that were made when the debtor was insolvent, which is within the ninety day period, makes it easier for a trustee to prove, uh, and, uh, and, and the payment allowed the creditor to get more than they would get in the liquidation. And one of the defenses to a preference claim is new value, to the extent that uh, after a payment, a creditor ships new goods, provides new services. Uh, that is a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction of preference exposure. Well, what happens if the new goods that were provided are part of a creditor's Section 503 priority claim? The creditor gets that claim allowed as a priority claim, and the creditor gets paid on that claim. Should they be able to assert the goods that were shipped as new value that are part of that claim? And is there a risk uh, of the uh, that if if the uh, new value is denied, that the creditor is losing the benefit uh, of that priority status? So lots of stuff to litigate uh, here, as Scott mentioned and I mentioned, uh, that could have a great impact on the recoverability of this claim. Uh, which, again, for, this, for the sake of if a bankruptcy for the various constituencies, debtors and secure lenders would, would love to see these claims minimized, and they certainly have enough issues in the statute in some of these other areas to litigate and potentially reduce uh, recoveries on these claims.
0: It sounds like you and Scott will be in court for the next couple of years.
2: That's why well, I wrote the statute that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Gentlemen, we've talked a lot today about trade creditor remedies, and we've only touched a tip of the iceberg of the materials that are provided in the trade creditor remedies manual. But I wanted to see if you could give one or two takeaways to our listeners of the best strategies that trade creditors could utilize to maximize their recovery.
1: Let's see. Scott, I don't know if you know, I I would say that it's a one-two punch of knowing, being able to identify the warning signals of the bankruptcy to come, and particularly uh, of the bankruptcy that may be a year or more off uh, out of the horizon, and then being able to identify the remedies that the trade creditor can afford to use to reduce its exposure in that bankruptcy to come, with the goal being uh that uh, to the extent that it's legally possible and you have the contractual right to do so or you're not bought by contract and you have the rights under the uniform commercial code to do so to be able to exercise uh the rights uh of adequate to demand adequate assurance and or stoppage of delivery um before the bankruptcy is filed, and certainly in the case of stoppage uh right after the bankruptcy is filed to again reduce uh exposure and increase recovery on the claim. And, uh, and the third thing, again, is understanding that uh, the trade creditor has substantial rights if they're a good seller under Section 503B9 to enhance their ability to recover by being able to uh, enforce that claim, but understanding that uh, there are each court is adopting procedures for the assertion of the claim, and if you're not uh, up to snuff in terms of asserting the claim in accordance with the procedures, you can lose what is a potentially very, very valuable claim.
2: Scott, anything to add on that? No, I think you you, you covered it all.
0: <laughs> well, we're out of time for today, but I wanted to thank our guests, Bruce Nathan and Scott Cargill, for joining us. You can purchase the Trade Creditor Remedies Manual on ABI's online bookstore at bookstore.abi.org. They make great client gifts. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Scott, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us. And
0: we thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can hear or download over 100 podcasts from ABI's homepage at www.abi.org. From the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Amy Klackenboss. Thank you for listening and have a great day.